Petri Wine brings you Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce and the new adventures of Sherlock Holmes. The Petri family, the family that took time to bring you good wine, invite you to listen to Dr. Watson tell us another exciting adventure he shared with his good friend, that master detective, Sherlock Holmes. And I'd like to tell you about my favorite time of day. It's just before dinner. You know when the family's all sitting around in the living room and wonderful things are cooking in the kitchen? Ah, that's for me. And boy, that's the time for a glass of sherry. Because Petri California sherry really makes waiting for dinner a pleasure. That Petri sherry is the perfect before dinner wine. Just look at its beautiful amber color. And then taste that wonderful Petri sherry. What a flavor. Petri sherry has a rich, nutty flavor that's right from the heart of sun-ripened grapes. And if you like your sherry dry, you know, not sweet, you'll want to get Petri Pale Dry Sherry. Or better yet, taste them both. Don't buy one, buy two. Those letters P-E-T-R-I on the label are the personal assurance of the Petri family that Petri Sherry is truly good wine. Now it's time to keep the weekly appointment with our good friend, Dr. Watson. How are you this evening, Doctor? I never felt better, thank you, Mr. Bartell. Draw up your usual chair and make yourself comfortable. Thanks. That's it. Oh, I see you've had the old tin dispatch box out again. I suppose you've been going through your notes on tonight's new Sherlock Holmes adventure? Yes, Mr. Bartell. I think you'll find it as pretty a little problem as we ever encountered. The story began in 1887. A very busy year for us, my boy. It was the same year that Holmes solved the case of the Amateur Mendicant Society, who held their meetings in a luxuriously furnished vault below a furniture warehouse. Oh, I remember that story, Doctor. And uh, wasn't 87 the year you both escaped from death in the Paradol Chamber? It was indeed. You've got a very good memory, Mr. Bartell. The story I'm going to tell you tonight topped off this unusually exciting year. It was late in October, and the equinoctial gales had set in with exceptional violence. All day the wind had howled and the rain had beaten against the windows of our Baker Street lodgings. Finally, it was uh, nearly midnight, as far as I remember. The storm grew higher and louder, and the wind in the chimney sobbed like a child. Suddenly, much to our surprise, the doorbell jangled, and a few moments later, our midnight visitor stood before us. He was a man of about 45, and as he looked about him anxiously in the glare of the lamp, I could see that his face was pale and that his eyes heavy like those of a man who was weighed down with some great anxiety. And yet when he spoke, his tone was businesslike and almost aggressive. I've come to you for advice, Mr. Holmes. That's easily obtained. And help. That is not always so easy. Help the gentleman off with his coat, will you, Watson? Here you are, sir. Let me me hang it up for you. Thank you, sir. I heard of you, Mr. Holmes, from Major Prendergast. Oh, yes. He said that you could solve anything. I'm afraid he said too much. But you've never been beaten. I've been beaten four times, sir. Three times by men and once by a woman. But supposing you sit down and introduce yourself. Uh, my friend is Watson, Dr. Watson. How do you do, sir? How do you do, Doctor? My name is Lovelace, Edmund Lovelace. And what brings you to me this hour of the night, Mr. Lovelace? I'm in terrible trouble, Mr. Holmes. You don't know anything about me, but if you'll accept my case, you can save four lives. I wouldn't say that I know nothing about you, sir. No, it's true that I know little beyond the somewhat obvious fact that... Uh, well, you're single, <clears throat> that you keep a dog, but not a manservant. And that you are much preoccupied with your business, which I take to be some form of insurance. Oh, come, come, come. Oh, steady. Now, what is this? Well, I, magic? I'll wager that my friend's right, though. Isn't he, Mr. Lovelace? Perfectly. But I'll be hanged if I can see how he knows it. a practical application of logic, sir. The briefcase that you carry might at first indicate a barrister or some other professional man, but your brusque, business- business-like manner counteracts that suggestion. An insurance broker who must visit clients at odd hours is the likeliest man to combine that manner with a briefcase of midnight. But uh, the wife and the manservant and the fact that I'm preoccupied with my business. Uh, your cufflinks don't match, sir. Each is from a different pair. That would suggest preoccupation. And it's a mistake that neither a wife nor a servant would have allowed to pass. Yes, yes but how about the dog? Home? Oh, surely that's obvious. Well, I can't see it. I shall let you ponder on that matter while Mr. Lovelace tells us his problem. Mr. Holmes. Are you as interested in preventing a murder as in solving one? Well, naturally, I am, Mr. Lovelace. Even more so. But uh, uh, please tell me your story. 
I live with four cousins of mine in an old Camberwell. My grandfather left the house and a sizable fortune to the five of us on condition that we lived together and maintained the family unity. It probably would surprise you to know that we've grown to get pretty much on each other's nerves. Well, what happens if one of you dies, Mr. Lovelace? His share is divided among the others, Doctor. Oh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> the wonder to me is, sir, that... Uh... Not that a murder may take place, but uh, that it has not happened long ago. Who's responsible for the administration of the estate? My cousin, Gerald. He's much older than the rest of us, and he's a thoroughly unpleasant, cantankerous man. He gets an extra share in the estate as administrator, and in consequence, he doesn't work. We feel, of course, that he lives off us, and we're continually quarrelling with him about it. Sounds like a jolly household, I must say. There's going to be trouble, Mr. Holmes, I know it. Gerald hates us, and he's jealous of our share in the estate. You spoke of preventing murder just now. Uh, Yet I can see that you've selected your cousin Gerald as the potential murderer. Am I right? Yes, you are. Mm -hmm. But don't think it's personal prejudice that makes me suspect him. I have good reason for doing so. Oh, what reason? This evening, just before dinner, I helped Gerald off with his topcoat and went to hang it up for him. As I did so, I heard a strange clink in one of his pockets. I slipped my hand inside it and found a hypodermic syringe and a small pile of liquid. I opened the pile and smelled it. Gentlemen... It reeked of bitter almonds. Bitter cyanide, eh? And what did you do? I thought of destroying it, but I realized that that would put him on his guard, so I replaced it in his pocket. Of course, I warned the others. And we decided that I'd come to you. I have your most important client tonight, or I'd have been here earlier. Yes, it seems odd that you didn't come directly to Mr. Holmes as soon as you'd made the discovery, Mr. Lovelace. After all, if a potential murderer is walking about with a pocket full of cyanide, I should have thought that that itself was more important than business. Well, I... uh... Yes, I... I suppose it might seem so to you, Doctor. Now, that's the most interesting stick you carry, sir. May I examine it? Of course. Here. Oh, thank you. <laughs> now I see how you deduced that Mr. Lovelace had a dog, Holmes. There are the marks of the dog's teeth on the stick. Yes, my dear Watson, but these marks under scrutiny give us even more specific information. He's a large dog. You've had him for some years, Mr. Lovelace, and he's now old and feeble. Well, you're perfectly right, but... I'll be hanged if I can see how you can tell that from looking at a walking stick. <laughs> this stick is covered with teeth marks, therefore it has been carried many times by the dog. Now it's um, a heavy stick, so only a large dog could have carried it. And the teeth marks also indicate a large jaw. The older marks are deep sunk. Look here. The fresh ones, where the wood has not yet darkened, are shallow. Yes, it's obvious that the jaws are losing their strength. That's very clever of you, Mr. Holmes, but... I don't see what it has to do with the case in hand. Neither do I, Holmes, I must confess. No, surely it tells us that your story, Mr. Lovelace, may bear a less terrifying implication than you think. On the other hand, its implication may be even more terrifying. Oh, it's late at night. I feel that any further delay in this matter would be extremely dangerous. I suggest that we get a cab and come to your house in Camberwell at once. Randolph, I'm glad you're still up. I was able to persuade Mr. Sherlock Holmes, Dr. Watson, to come back with me. Gentlemen, this is my cousin, Alice Harley. How do you do? How do you do, Miss Harley? How do you do? And my cousin, Randolph Lovely. How do you do? How do you do, sir? How do you do, Mr. Lovely? I've told him about the whole business, Randolph, so we can all speak perfectly freely. Let's begin by sitting down, shall we? Randolph and I had just finished a little cold supper. We've been to the theatre tonight. Well, Mr. Holmes, I... I suppose Edmund told you about finding the hypodermic syringe. And the cyanide in Gerald's coat pocket. Yes, indeed. May I ask where your cousin uh, Gerald Lovelace is now? We left the house at seven, but I imagine Gerald went upstairs at eight, as usual. Didn't he, Edmund? On the stroke of eight, Alice. He's very fixed in his habits, Mr. Holmes. He goes up to his room every night at eight. There he reads or works on his accounts and eventually goes to bed any time between ten and one. Well, he might stop. I should like to speak to him a little later. In the meanwhile, may I ask you two young people, tell me quite honestly your feelings about your cousin, Gerald? And you might as well be frank. I've kept nothing back. All right. Randolph and I hate him. First of all, we're sure he's jealous of our shares in the estate, and and then we... Alice and I want to get married, Mr. Holmes, and Gerald won't hear of it. But you're your cousins, aren't you? Only second cousins, Dr. Watson. Gerald is dreadfully conventional. He's threatened us that if we do get married, he'll go to court and try to have our shares in the estate annulled. And from the way the will is worded, I wouldn't be surprised he could do it. So you can see why we have no great love for him. Why we're afraid of him. He sounds an extremely unpleasant person to me. You you mentioned there were five cousins in the house. Three of you are here. Mr. Gerald Lovelace is upstairs. Who and uh, where is the fifth cousin? The fifth cousin is my brother, Gilly. He's something of a tragedy, I'm afraid. You see... 
Gilly is 20, but he... He never developed mentally beyond the, the age of it. He had a bad fall in the hunting field when he was a kid. He's been like this ever since. Well, I'm sorry to hear that, sir. But he's the dearest, most gentle boy you've ever met. And, incidentally, the one person in this house who doesn't hate Gerald. The poor fellow doesn't understand the conditions of the will, I suppose. No. But if he did, I don't think it'd make any difference. I swear that Gilly loves every living thing, especially Gladstone. Gladstone is the name of his dog. His dog? Yes. The dog may be the key to this whole matter. The dog? What makes you say that, Holmes? When a man brings a quick and painless poison home to a household containing an old and feeble dog, it's more than possible that he has obtained that poison quite legitimately to give the dog a merciful death. To kill Gladstone? Oh, no! After all, Alice, dear, he is old and almost blind But, now. Mr. Holmes, if you think Gerald brought home the poison to put Gladstone out of the way, and I admit it sounds perfectly logical, what made you decide to come here tonight? Because I dare not even guess what you may have done by intruding the thought of murder in this situation. Uh, where is your brother, Gilly? In his room upstairs, asleep. I wonder if we might go up to him. I should like to talk to him, if you don't mind. And after that, I... I want a few words with your cousin, Gerald Lovelace. Sleep, Mr. Helms. Yes, with it with a dog in his arm. Hmm. I'm afraid we'll have to waken him. Gilly. Gilly. That's all right, Gladstone. We're not going to hurt him. Gilly. Hmm? Who, who, who is it? Oh. Hello, Alice. Who, who are these men? They've come to take Gladstone away. Oh, no, Gilly. We, we haven't. Oh, of course not, Gilly. We've just come to admire him. Your brother's been telling us what a fine dog he is. Oh, that's different. He... Isn't he beautiful? I... I just had such a wonderful dream about him. Oh, such a wonderful dream. What was it, Gilly? Hmm? Well, he, he was all young again. Just a puppy. He, he was chasing a rabbit across a cliff top, and, and... And I was running with him. Oh, Glaston looked so beautiful. Didn't you, old boy? Of course you did. And... And, you know, the rabbit went down a hole, and... And Gladstone went down after him. And I went down after Gladstone. And, and we all had tea with the rabbits. Huh? Funny. We all had little green hats on. Hats with, with feathers. I wanted Gladstone to try one on, but... Well, he wouldn't. So sleepy. Come on, Gladstone. Let's go back to the tea party. Okay. Hmm. His world may be a great deal more pleasant than ours, Watson. That's what I'd like to think, Mr. Holmes. Now I'd like to have a few words with your cousin, Gerald. His room's at the end of this corridor. I'm afraid Gilly wasn't much help to you, Mr. Holmes. On the contrary, young lady. He told me exactly what I wanted to know. Here we are. This is Gerald's room. There's no light under the door. He must have gone to sleep. And I'm afraid we must waken him, too. Hmm. Must be a heavy sleeper. But he isn't. He's a remarkably light one. Come on, let's go in. Strike a match, will you, old fellow? Not sure. The gas mantle's at the head of his bed, Dr. Watson. Yeah. Well, he's lying on the outside of his bed. He must be... There's blood on the pillow. Great Scott Holmes, the back of his skull smashed in. He's been murdered. <gasps> oh, no! Horrible! Yes, Watson, but not by the blows on his head. Look here on the table by his bed. Hypodermic syringe and a broken file. Yes, a broken file. Reeking of bitter almonds. Poor devil. Well, I won't pretend I liked him. But what a ghastly way to die. All they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. So the scriptures say, Mr. Lovelace. The very suspicion of the killing has brought murder to pass. Well, it's too late to prevent it. Our job now is to find the killer and see that he's brought to justice. Dr. Watson will tell you the rest of his story in just a few seconds. Just time enough for me to tell you that if there's one wine that's perfect for any occasion, it's Petri California Sherry. With a bottle of that rich, amber-colored Petri Sherry on hand, you can make that time before dinner a, a main event. And Petri Sherry is the perfect answer to the question of what to serve when company comes. 
Sir Petri Sherry alone and let its full, wonderful flavor speak for itself, or serve Petri with hors d'oeuvres or party sandwiches. And remember, you can serve Petri Sherry proudly because Petri is the proudest name in the history of American wine. Well, Dr. Watson, so you found Gerald Lovelace dead in one of the bedrooms of the house in Camberwell. Uh, what did you do? Send for the police? Not at once, Mr. Bartell. Sherlock Holmes persuaded the remainder of the household to give him the opportunity of examining the scene of the crime carefully before the police were sent for. And so, a few minutes before one o'clock that October night, Holmes and I stood alone in the room of death. Turn the gas a little higher, will you, old chap? You know, Holmes... I think you should have sent for the police right away. In a case like this, Watson, I prefer to be my own police. When I have spun the web, they may take the flies, but not before. What are the results of your medical examination, old chap? Well, it's exactly as you reconstructed it, Holmes. He was first beaten on the head with that poker lying on the floor. Then he had the full file of cyanide injected into his left wrist. Can you estimate the time of death too accurately? No, this room's confoundedly hot. He might have died any time from one to, to five hours ago. Yes. It's now one o'clock, and we know that he was alive at eight. Mr. Edmund Lovelace saw him leave for his room at that hour. Yes, if he was telling the truth. One thing we do know for a fact is that this man was murdered at the exact moment he was going to bed. He's wearing his nightgown and nightcap, but his bed has not been slept in. Well, isn't it possible that the murderer might have killed him shortly after eight and then dressed him in his nightclothes to confuse us? No, my dear chap. You will notice that the hypodermic needle passed through the sleeve of his nightshirt. Yeah. Also, the nightcap is crushed and bloodstained from the blows of the poker. No, Gerald Lovelace had prepared for bed. Yes. Look at the glass of water on the night table and the, the prayer book and the watch. Yes. Signs of a prosperous and meticulous man. Mm -hmm. Very fine gold watch and in excellent condition. Aha. Uh -huh. There's the answer, Watson. What do you mean, there's the answer, Watson? I just wound this watch one turn and then it was fully wound. That provides us with a time schedule for our murder. Come on. We'll send a servant for the police, and while they're on the way, if you'll call everyone together, I should like to put a few more questions to this family. Before the police arrive, I should like to hear your statements again very carefully, if you don't mind. Mr. Edmund Lovelace... What were your exact movements tonight? I left here shortly before ten. From ten o'clock until the time I came to Baker Street, I was with my client. His name and address, please. Derek Waterlow, Van Onslow Square, South Kensington. Thank you. Make a note of these, will you, Watson? Right, you are, Holmes. You, Miss Harley, and you, Mr. Randolph Lovelace. Went to the theatre together. Can any independent witness testify as to your movements? Well, yes, Mr. Holmes. We went with friends, the Grant Moresby's. They live at the Clarendon Hotel off Charing Cross. What time did you leave this house? Well, it, it was about a quarter to eight, wasn't it, Alice? Yes. And after the play, we went to the Café Royale for a little refreshment with our friends and then came back here. I see. And what time did you arrive back at this house? Just a few minutes before midnight. I remember the grandfather clock in the hall striking just as we went into the drawing room. And your brother Gilly, sir. I hate to waken him again. Have you any idea of his movements tonight? Well, he never goes out after dark, Mr. Holmes. Mm -hmm. But I spoke to the cook as we came in tonight. She says that he played cards with her until just after ten o'clock. He was fast asleep when I looked in on him shortly after midnight. Thank you. You've made a note of all these facts, Watson? Yes, Holmes. I got them all down. Good. Then let's be on our way to Baker Street. But the police, Mr. Holmes, they're on their way. I know. Uh, uh, please give them my regards, will you? Apologize for my informality and tell them that I shall have the answer to this matter probably in a little over 24 hours. <laughs> Here it is, well after midnight. You haven't done a thing on the Camberwell case. No, but you have, old chap. You've checked on all the time alibis and found them valid. I'm much obliged to you. Well, since Petra Lestard was here tonight, you know, and he made some pretty caustic remarks, I can tell you. Oh, didn't you inform him that I'll uh, have the answer to the problem before many hours have passed? Uh, but you know, Lestard, he, he wanted action. <laughs> he shall have it. Is the watch... Still running. Yes, there's another thing. What will Lestrade say when he finds that you took the dead man's watch? I've no idea. Oh, why did you take it anywhere? You sound sleepy, old chap. Yes, I am confoundedly sleepy. Well, why don't you go to bed? What are you going to do? Continue my vigil with my pipe 
and the watch of a dead man. Watson, Watson, wake up. Uh, Five o'clock in the morning. Good Lord, what are you doing up at this hour? The watch has just stopped. I'm about to rewind it. What are you rewinding it for, Holmes? You waited over 24 hours for it to unwind. When I know how many turns it takes to wind it fully, I shall have the answer to the whole business. Ten. Eleven. You're being confoundedly mysterious, as usual. Fourteen. Fourteen turns, and the watch is fully wound. Get your clothes on, old chap. Well, where are we going on this hour? To the house in Camberwell. Now I know who murdered Gerald Lovelace. <laughs> Edmund Lovelace, I'm glad you let us in. Please take us up to your young cousin's room at once. Really? What do you want with him? I'll explain in a moment. Please take us up to him. Oh, of course, but what brings you here at this hour of the morning? Mr. Holmes knows who murdered your cousin. Well, I'm glad to hear it. It's more than the police seem to know. They were here half the night cross-examining us. Here we are. I don't think we'll bother to knock. Billy. Billy? I'm awake. We heard you coming up the stairs, didn't we, Gladstone? It's the same man again. You're not going to take Gladstone away, are you? Please don't take him away. Oh, don't worry, Gilly. We're not going to touch him. Oh, that's all right, then. Oh, Gilly. Yes? You really love that dog, don't you? Of course I do. More than anything or, or anybody. I believe you'd even kill a man who tried to hurt Gladstone, wouldn't you? Oh, yes, sir. I would. Gilly! No. Great Scott. Gilly, I don't think you'd really kill a man. I don't think you could. <laughs> Couldn't I, though? How would you kill him? I'd hit him first. I'd take a poker and hit him in the head so he couldn't fight back. And then I'd take the nasty needle he told me he was going to stick in Gladstone and, and, and I'd fill it full of that water he showed me and I'd stick it in him. That's what I'd do. Then he'd be dead. And, and he couldn't hurt my Glaston anymore. Not ever. <laughs> Let's leave him, shall we? Goodbye, Gilly. Plus dreams. Goodbye, sir. Good old Gladstone. You satisfied, sir? Yes. Poor Gilly. There's no doubt about it, of course. Well, can there be no one who described the murder to him, and yet he's just given... A... An exact description of its method. Well, well, uh, what'll happen to him? They, they won't try him. No, 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 no. A little pressure in the right places and he'll be released to a private nursing home. I'll do everything I can, Mr. Lovelace. Thank you, Mr. Holmes. Thank you. Well, Holmes, now that we're back in Baker Street and the whole depressing case is finished with... Perhaps you'll tell me how you knew that Billy had committed the murder. Well, consider the uh, time schedules, old fellow. You checked the alibis of the other cousins and found them satisfactory. That meant that um, Alice Harley and uh, Randolph Lovelace could have committed the crime only at midnight. Edmund, only before ten. Gilly, only around eleven. You said that the uh, time of death could have been at any of those hours. Yes, I did. So how did you pin it down to, uh, to eleven? The watch gave me the specific answer. When I picked it up, I unthink unthinkingly wound it. Made one turn and was then fully wound. Now, when does a methodical, precise man like Gerald Lovelace wind his watch? Just he's going to bed. Exactly, old fellow. So that it was obvious that he was killed precisely one watch stem turn before I wound his watch. Now I'm beginning to see daylight, Holmes. So you let the watch run down. That's what I did. It took... Uh, 28 hours, from 1 o'clock the night before last until 5 this morning. Now, how many turns did it take to rewind it? 14, wasn't it? That's right. Therefore, one turn of the watch stem equaled two hours, proving that Gerald Lovelace had been murdered two hours before 1 o'clock at 11 p.m. When Gilly was the only one who could have done it. You know, I still find it hard to believe that boy was capable of such a ghastly crime. He seemed so gentle. Oh, he is, he is. Except when his beloved dog's life was at stake, probably out of some mistaken notion of kindness, Gerald Lovelace warned the boy of his intentions regarding the dog. Oh, 
It's a sad business, Watson, a sad business. I hate to think of that boy spending the rest of his life in a mental home. I have one prayer for his future. What's that, Holm? <clears throat> the dog Gladstone can't live very long. I pray that Gilly does not long outlive him. was a remarkable bit of deduction on the part of Mr. Holmes. Yes, extremely clever, wasn't it? Of course, if I may say so, I was of some small help myself. Small help? Why, Doctor, you practically solved the case by yourself. Oh, I wouldn't go as far as saying that. But, Doctor, you did check all the alibis, didn't you? Yes, I checked where each suspect was at various times. Yes, you checked time. And what's more important than time? Well, Why, I... Dr. Time is even vitally important when it comes to wine. I was wondering how you were going to bring that in. And one thing we do know... Petri took time to bring you good wine. So nobody can miss with Petri wine. It's just got to be good. You know, you can't be in the wine business as long as the Petri family without really learning all about the fine art of making wine. And don't forget, the Petri family has been making fine wine since way back in the 1800s. So, naturally, they've been able to hand on down from father to son, from father to son... The result of generations of experience at turning luscious, sun-ripened grapes into fragrant, delicious wine. No matter what type of wine you prefer, you'll like it more if it's a Petri wine. Because Petri took time to bring you good wine. Well, Dr. Watson, what new Sherlock Holmes story do you plan to tell us next week? Well, now, next week, Mr. Bartell, I'm going to tell you a most unusual adventure that Holmes and I had when we were attending a performance at the Opera House in Rome concerns a famous singer who lost her voice, an understudy who was nearly lynched, and a murder that baffled the police. I call it the adventure of the terrifying cat. Well, that's a story we've got to hear. Thank you, Mr. Bartell. And before you go, I want to talk to our friends about their war bonds. You know, during the war, the best investment we could find was the United States one. And for my money, they're still a great investment. They're called United States savings bonds now, and only the name is changed. Savings bonds are sold the same denominations and give you all the same advantages. And you can buy savings bonds at the same places at your bank or your post office or through the payroll savings plan. So invest all you can in United States savings bonds because you cannot find a better or a safer investment. Tonight's Sherlock Holmes adventure was written by Dennis Green and Anthony Boucher and was suggested by an incident in the Sir Arthur Conan Doyle story, The Five Orange Pips. Music is by Dean Fostler. Mr. Rathbone appears through the courtesy of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer and Mr. Bruce through the courtesy of Universal Pictures, where they are now starring in the Sherlock Holmes series. Petri Wine Company of San Francisco, California, invites you to tune in again next week, same time, same station. Sherlock Holmes comes to you from our Hollywood studios. This is Harry Bartell and good night for the Petri family. Listen every Monday on most of these same stations at clock to Michael Shane, followed immediately by Sherlock Holmes. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System.
help for a headache. It's on sale at all drugstores. Caution, use only as directed. If headaches recur, persist, see your doctor. Get Bromo Seltzer today and... Times Square to Columbus Circle, the gaudiest, the most violent, the lonesomest mile in the world. Broadway's My Beat, with Larry Thor as Detective Danny Clover. where the fury of the night races against the time of dawn. It needs those hours to prove itself. The mob, the grinning faces, the voice that whispers. But hurry. Times at your heels in the night lasts only so long. That's the word on Broadway. My beat. It's a system they worked out long ago. The darkness is reserved for those who break the law so that the police can write out their reports in the daytime. That's what I was doing, writing out reports when Sergeant Tartaglia nudged his head through the doorway. Good morning to you, my lieutenant. Hello, Tartaglia. What's in your mind? Oh, she's here again, Danny. Yeah, I had a feeling she'd be here. She'll never give up, will she? You know, I got a theory about that, Danny. Sure, in. Uh, yeah, sure, Danny. This way, miss. Are you going to help me, Mr. Clover? Are you? Don't send me away again. Crossed the room and placed her fingers on my desk was slender. Her face seemed about to go suddenly old. The skin was pale, unveined, dead white. I've come back to ask you again, Mr. Clover. Sit down. Robert. No. A beggar who stands can keep some dignity. I like to think that anyhow. Maybe it's a lie. Rhoda. Did you say my name gently to show me you pity me? I don't want to be pitied. No, look, Miss Lynn. Danny was only trying Rhoda, to... listen to me. Listen. Yes. Yes, I'll listen. Say a kind word to me. Rhoda, you've come to ask me to have your father's body exhumed. I know that. You know that. But we've already done that. Two months ago, four months after your father died, we exhumed his body. He wasn't poisoned, Rhoda. In spite of what you say, he wasn't poisoned. Poisoned? That's how my father died. Robert Lynn, my father, was murdered. That's a simple sentence. Understand it. The death certificate... My father was poisoned, and I'm being poisoned, and I'm going to die. And you'll sit there and say my dying meets all the requirements for dying because there'll be a death certificate. No. Nothing. Bye, Mr. Cope. Annie, that girl needs attention of some sort or another. Uh, talking to, by a doctor, by a parent, by somebody. Where does she live, Tatanka? In a combination dentist office and living quarters on 147th Street, uh, 1612, with her mother and stepfather. Stepfather? Yeah, yeah, her mother got married again. Hey, this mother must like dentists. The husband who died was a dentist. Now husband number two, one Bernard Burke, turns up also to have a talent with the drill. Hey, you going up there, Danny? Like I said, Rhoda Lynn needs talking to by somebody. <laughs> The place where Rhoda lived was a soot-crusted five-story apartment building of yellow and pockmarked brick. It stood on 147th Street, just around the corner from where Broadway tries to be suburban. And it had two things, an open court to grab onto whatever light and air that was left over. And the kids, the kids bouncing a ball against a brand-new gilt-lettered sign that said, Bernard Burke, dentist, five flights up, gas, no pain. As I rounded the turn on the fourth floor, I heard a door close above me and steps starting down. And then the steps became a voice that said it knew me. Danny, Danny Clover. Uh, I know you, Danny. You know me? I'm sorry, I... Ah, uh, you don't know me. Here, I'll lean my face over in the light. 
A familiar face, huh, Danny? <laughs> Repulsive, but familiar, huh? Yeah, yeah, but I don't quite play... Elliot, Van Elliot, the, the private investigator. You're your civilian competition. Uh, remember the axe murder case where I was positively useless to you? <laughs> you remember that, don't you, Danny? Sure, sure. How are you, Ben? Happy as a figure. <laughs> Glad to hear it. What are you doing here, Ben? Competing? Ah, uh, you you deduce this just because I just came out of a dentist's office. Nah, nah, Danny. You, you got it all wrong. Bert, the no-pain dentist, has just made some alterations on a bridge I suffer in my mouth. Here, I take a look. Stunning. I hope you and the bridge are very happy together. <laughs> you kill me, Danny. Such a wit. You, Danny, what's with you? You also got sorrows in your teeth? In every one. So long, Ben. See you around. Yeah, Danny. Take that. I recommend it from the heart. Yes? You had an appointment with Dr. Burke? You'll have to wait. I'll wait. You could amuse yourself with some Euro National Geographic or this brochure from a dental supply house with illustrations in color. Or you could talk to me. That uh, last thing. Let's do that. You've made such a wise choice. And now, do you begin, or shall I? You're Rhoda's mother, aren't you, Mrs. Burke? Oh, oh! <laughs> <laughs> Men are such babies about clean, aren't they? And my husband is such a dental dentist. You're Rhoda's mother. Yes, I'm Rhoda's mother. And Dr. Burke's assistant and wife. And you... One of Rhoda's numerous and nameless boyfriends? I'm Danny Clover of the police, Mrs. Burke. Rhoda was in to see me again. To ask you to have her father's body torn out of its grave again? Then you know about it, about her coming to me. Of course I know. Her girl's best friend is her mother, isn't she, Mr. Clover? Rhoda adores me. She tells me everything. But not in a whisper, in a scream. Like what? What does she tell you, Mrs. Burke? That I murdered my first husband, her father. That I'll murder her, that I... Oh, she's such a sick little girl. So sick. We try to help her, but we can't. She won't let us. The sickness that drains all the sweetness out of her. Sick. She's not like a mother's child at all. She's always so pale, Mrs. Burke. Have you had her to a doctor? Rhoda? Do you think she would let me take her anywhere, do things for her, tell her what she should do when she thinks that terrible, ugly thing about me? Answer me, Mr. Clover. I just ran into a man, Ben Elliott, a private investigator. What was he doing here, Mrs. Burke? Oh. Oh, now. Oh. Here, just go on home, Mr. Raymond. Oh. Put a nice pack on it. And here's some sample aspirin. Oh. Take two every two hours. And a hot and cold applications during the night. Ah, you'll feel like a new man. Oh, oh. <laughs> oh well. What have we here, Mildred? A new patient? Uh, you're next, sir. Uh, not a patient, Bernard. A policeman. Danny Clover. He's concerned about Rhoda. Do you think we can help him? Well, I'm glad you're here, Mr. Clover. Will you step into my office, please? Bernard! Uh, please, Mildred. We should have handled it this way in the first place. Uh, will you go in, Mr. Clover? Bernard, I advise you to let it alone. Mildred, alert. will you take care of those X-ray negatives? During office hours, you are my assistant. Thank you, Mildred. Uh, after you, Mr. Clover. Uh, sit in the dentist chair, Mr. Clover. Very comfortable. <laughs> it's almost paid for, it, too. Yeah, I'll, I'll adjust it. Yeah, isn't that nice? Never had it better. Now, Dr. Burke, what is it that you should have handled this way? Uh, I only ask because I'm curious. Oh, yes, of course. The theft of the gold. The gold I used to fill my client's teeth. Most durable. 14 carat. Very expensive. Shines when brushed. Does that? Oh, beautifully. I'm reporting it to you because you're a policeman. And the only proper authority to handle it. Mildred tried to convince me otherwise. She did, too. Oh? Yeah, she looked in the classified and found the name of a private investigator, Ben Elliott. And I had him up here and told him all. I tried to tell her we should report it to the police, but she wouldn't have it. And that's why I'm glad you're here. Because now both Mildred and I have had our way. Yeah, I'm glad. I'll turn it over to the burglary detail, Dr. Burton. I'd appreciate it, Mr. Clover. That's nothing. Now talk to me about Rhoda, Dr. Burton. Oh... Well, I can't tell you much about her. She never confides in me. I'm her stepfather, you know. Sometimes it's very painful. Who does she confide in? Well, there's a boy, Frank Norman. Rhoda was always with him. Matter of fact, I had to go and bring her home one night because they were both too... too drunk, Mr. Clover, to, 
maneuver by themselves. Mm. Where was that? Well, it's a bar somewhere on 52nd Street. Well, that street is home for that boy. Uh, you'll find my goal, Mr. Corbett. It's very important in my business. Yeah, yeah, it's a promise, Dr. Burke. The bars of 52nd Street wink at you. It's a special kind of wink, mechanized in chrome, and the tubular neon offers a variety of colors. The decor is sleek, the prices pegged to suit your individual needs, and the invitations are but irresistible. So I bar hopped, looking for a kindred spirit named Frank Norman. It took quite a while. Then near 10th Avenue, there was a place where the decor had crumbled just a bit, where a jukebox sold background music to emotions, also crumbling. The bartender waved me to the back of the room, toward a boy sitting there considering what dreams are to be found in the bottom of a shot glass. I touched his shoulder. Hi. Hi, hi, hi. And I don't know you. I'm Danny Clover. Might as well sit down. Goes like this, Danny. As a tyke, I was unloved and unwanted. I was left to consider the forever moon and the howling wind and garbage. Mm-hmm. That's it, Danny. Precisely and with poetic embellishments. My life for a drink. Buy it, Danny. Go ahead, buy it. Yeah. Waiter. Yours, Frank. And I have another version, also for the price of a gin, and a brandy version that fills me to think about. But I'll sell it too. That one, it includes Rhoda Lynn, huh? Who are you? What do you want? I said it once. Danny Clover. Police. You didn't say the last part. All you said was Danny Clover. And all you did was buy me a drink. Police. I'm pure, Danny Clover. Police. Law-abiding. Upright. Unsullied by temptation. Harmless. What about Rona? What about Rona? Is this? She's dying. She sent me away because she's dying. Sent me back to the garbage. She's dying. Dying? How do you know? Death sits on her shoulder and whispers to her, can't you tell? I can tell. I loved Rhoda when she wasn't dying. That's how I can tell. What about her mother? Does she know? Her mother? Mildred Burke. Yeah. What about her? She married a man three months after her husband died. That's a complete biography of Mildred Burke. That explains her. It explains everything about her. Well, that's her privilege. <laughs> there was even a brother of yours. You are a detective, aren't you, Danny Clover? Another detective? Ben Elliott, maybe? Ben Elliott. He was detecting for her even when her first husband was alive. You look surprised. Don't look surprised. Go up to the bartender, give him money, tell him it's for me. Tell him my wish is his command. I stood there for a moment longer, watched him, watched him till his voice blurred and his eyes sought something far away. Then I left. I looked up Ben Elliott in the classified, hailed a cab and went there, up a flight of stairs and walked back. The sign on the door said, come in. So I came in. Sound Rhoda made in her throat was like somebody far away yelling horribly. She stood beside the desk, swaying a little, her face ashen, even where her fingertips clotted her skin, there was no color. I caught her before she toppled over. I didn't do it. What didn't you do? I swear I didn't. I wasn't in the room. I didn't kill him. Then I saw him. He was on the other side of the desk, crumpled in a dark space, dead from a bullet hole in his throat. Ben Elliott, dead. And his hand squeezed around a clump of gold, frozen around it. The hand of the gold trapped in a thin shaft of light. And the girl stirred in my arms, and the scream that was imprisoned there tore itself from her throat. Listening to Broadway's My Beat, written by Morton Fine and David Friedkin, 
and starring Larry Thor as Detective Danny Clover. There are many things about Broadway. It has its own private set of values, for instance. It measures the essence of a man's life in terms of light and darkness. Big man, so many masks abroad, so many yards of neon to scream his name into the screaming night. Little man, his apportioned share of darkness. Like a spectacular with burnt out bulbs whispering into nothing. Dan Elliott was a little man. His only claim to distinction that he died holding a fistful of dentist's gold. But there was another thing. His murder was attended by a girl, pale and shrieking as death itself. I had to know a lot of things about her. Dr. Sinsky filled in a few. A very sick girl, Danny. So sick I can't tell you. Oh, try, doctor. Try to tell me, anyway. She's dying, Danny, of a rare type of pernicious anemia. So rare I had to call my old professor at Columbia to find out what it was. He called me a numbskull, then the Latin word for schlemiel, and then he told me. What type is it? <laughs> you wouldn't understand. You're a fine type fella, Danny, but excuse the expression, you're also a layman. Some diseases are so mysterious a doctor likes to keep them to himself. Now, wear them in good health. What about the poison? Did you find any evidence that she's being poisoned? None whatsoever. Only the toxic condition that the anemia itself sets up. Can I be so bold as to offer you some advice, Danny? I've got my own doctor. No, no, no. This isn't medical, Danny. It's, it's the milk of human kindness. If you've got nothing on this girl, this Rhoda Lynn, then let her go. Let her die in peace and dignity. Because she's dying, Danny. Take my word for it. Get Rhoda Lynn out here, Danny. Want to talk to us tomorrow? Yeah. Bring her in, Muggerman. Come on in, Rhoda. Oh, sit down, Rhoda. Would you like a drink of water or anything else? I just want to sleep. I just want to lie down somewhere and go to sleep. Can I go home, Mr. Clover? To my father's room? I've slept there ever since he died. Rhoda, why were you in Ben Elliott's office? I told you. How many times do I have to tell you? I went there because I thought he knew something about my father's murder. I wanted him to help me. You still believe your father was murdered? Yes. Yes. Oh, leave me alone. Leave me alone. Please, Miss Lynn, please. Here. Here, take this. That's a good girl. Mr. Clover is only trying to find out the truth. I've told him so many times. He won't believe me. Try me again, Rhoda. When did you first think your father was being poisoned? Right after Dr. Burke, Mildred's husband. My stepfather became my father's partner. That's when she began to kill him. I hate her. I hate her. Miss Lynn, easy, easy, Miss Lynn. And you went to Ben Elliott because you thought he knew your father had been poisoned or could help you find out. Yes, I've told then you. Then you killed him because he laughed at you, because he'd have no part of what you were thinking. No, I didn't kill him. I, I didn't. Where's the gun, Rhoda? Where's the gun you killed Ben Elliott with? Danny. What do you want, Muggerman? About the gun. The boys went over every nook and cranny and hole in Elliott's office. No gun. We looked outside in the street, in the alley. No gun. We even toyed with innocent bystanders. No gun. We checked where they sell guns. None were sold to Rhoda. No gun. Dr. Sinsky. Yes, Mr. Clover? See that Rhoda gets home. Take care of her. Give her something to give her the sleep she wants. Thanks, Danny. Come along, Miss Lynn. You're in for a nice, good rest. You'll enjoy it. You look like a fatuous puppy, Muggerman. Stop it before you lick my hand. Hard-hearted Danny of the police. What did you find on Elliot? He liked gold. Gold meaning money. In any shape, size, or form. As a matter of fact, he deposited the same in banks. 3,000 here, 2,000 there, 1,000 here and there. Ah, what do you know? The penniless Ben Elliot. Wish me luck, Muggerman. For what? I got pain, so I'm calling on a painless dentist. <laughs> Let me compliment you, Mr. Clover. Where did you find the gold? In a dead man's hand, Dr. Burke. Uh, what are you saying? Pay attention, doctor, and you'll get the message. I said in a dead man's hand. Well, what man? What man are you talking about? Ben Elliott. Who? You're doing it again, doctor. Ben Elliott, a dead man who tried to take it with him, a couple hundred bucks worth of gold. But of course I know you're lying. 
They're trying to make of this petty theft something mysterious. I suppose you detectives must do that to justify I don't it. understand you, Doctor. You didn't react when I said Ben Elliott. I reacted. You just weren't perceptive enough to catch my raising of the eyebrows slightly. I raised an eyebrow, Mr. Clover. If she were my wife... You're cluttering the trend of the conversation. What? Your wife. Mildred? What's Mildred got to do with Ben Elliott? I don't know. Ask her, Doctor. Ask her how buddy she's been with Elliot and for how long. Rumor says it's been for a long time. Getting this message, Doctor? Yes, You'll have to excuse me. Before you, Doctor. Before you even knew Mildred Ben Elliot was around. I've heard that, Doctor. Yes, you'll have to excuse me. There's some X-ray negatives I got to that. We'll talk. We'll, we'll talk in just a few minutes. All right. But please, in the waiting room. I'll meet you there. All right. That I'm dying. But you need some rest, Rhoda. Being poisoned. And I'll die the way my father died. In agony. And drink to kill the pain. That way, Mr. Clover. Come on. get here before I did. Because you were further away. You were down the hall. I was in the next room. Yeah. What would Dr. Burke want to kill himself for? Who knows the inner turnings of a man's mind, Mr. Clover? Maybe his wife. I did. He was a weak man. I've said that. Yes, you did. Which means you've told me exactly nothing. You'll have to tell me a lot more, Mrs. Burke. Ask me something. I will. First, we've got to make this death official, Mrs. Burke. There'll be photographers and print men and a coroner cluttering up your house. But you won't mind that. A woman like you doesn't mind anything, does she, Mrs. Burke? I was right. Mrs. Burke didn't mind. The neat, efficient trampling over a little dentist's life and death, she didn't mind. The questions, like steel prongs that raked over her brain and her sorrows and her dreams, she didn't mind. The fact that her answers added up to nothing, she minded least of all. At headquarters, I slept until the reports and analyses and photographs had been cataloged and filed and stacked and restacked and mulled over. Slept until Sergeant Gino Tataglia had watered them down. Well, you may awake now, Danny. I have digested everything and watered it down to simple terms even a child could understand. <sighs> Did a call come while I slept, Tataglia? No, Danny, no calls. You expecting one? From Rhoda Lynn. I made her promise to call me. What have you got? A big pile of nothing, Danny. The technicians from technical say it is extremely possible that our dentists did indeed and to wit commit suicide. Oh, they were very smug about it, Danny. What else? Uh, that question you asked me, the question of Dr. Sinsky? Uh-huh. He answers it in the affirmative. He says the x-ray thing is entirely possible. It happened here in New York two years ago. What happened here in New York two years ago, Danny? Danny Clover speaking. This is Rhoda, Mr. Clover. I'm calling you just as you told me to do. Are you in your father's room? Yes. You won't be going out again tonight? No, I won't, Mr. Clover. I'm going right to sleep. Hey, Danny. Danny, you can't leave me alone without I know what happened in New York two years ago. Danny! Good enough for you, Danny? Yeah, fine. You have much trouble getting the people in this apartment to go to the movies? Uh-uh. Well, some, but not much. Everybody likes free passes. Watch that room across the air shaft, Mugovan. That's Dr. Burke's office. Uh-huh. 
Uh, the dark one with the shade up? Yeah. I got a theory, kid. The only way I'll know I'm right is if we see another murder tonight. Oh. Huh? Like this. Go on the premise that Dr. Lynn was murdered. Dr. Lynn, the first husband of Mrs. Burke, the father of Rhoda. Go on that theory, Muggerman. Okay, let's. Dr. Lynn murdered because his wife wanted him out of the way so she could marry somebody else. Don't argue with women, Muggerman. And then there's Ben Elliott. Also dead. Yeah, dead, too. You know why? Uh, I'm not a lieutenant, Danny. The deposits Ben Elliott made, the big, big deposits, and regularly for a small-time operator. Blackmail, huh? Ben was collecting. The theory says, yeah. The theory says he was bleeding Mildred Burke because he knew she killed her husband. Ben, Mildred Burke ran out of money. Uh, this Kanurka person, Danny, it's happened to me. Mildred, too. She tried to pay Ben with gold. A couple hundred bucks where she lifted from her husband. Ben sneered at it. Mildred killed him. A theory, huh? Yeah, quite a one. Only it's lousy. From me to you, I say it's lousy. Why? The original premise, Dr. Lynn was not murdered, the books say. He died of anemia. Only I think the books are wrong. I think... Hey, Danny. Danny, the light just went on across the air shaft. Yeah, it's Mrs. Burke, huh? Yeah. Oh, what's she doing, Danny? Turn the x-ray machine around. She x-raying the wall? That, Muggerman, is a lesson on how to poison people without leaving a trace of how it was done. Duck, she's walking toward the window. Pulling down the blinds. Let's go. I still don't get it. X-rays, they'll go through eight feet of concrete. Rhoda's sleeping on the other side of that wall in the same room her father slept. Come on, hurry. Here, Danny. Yeah, don't knock, just enter. This one's locked. I said enter. Oh, well, you did. Oh, who is it? Who is it, I'll oh, you... What is the meaning of this breaking That machine muggerman, it's the thing that's killing Rhoda. Turn it off. Yeah, only I don't know how. Turn it off. Okay. Well, the end of the theory, Muggerman. Dr. Burke was no suicide. Mildred killed him and made it look like one. You're mad. Killed him. Because he finally found out about Ben Elliott and his wife. Because he would eventually learn everything. What? Take her, Muggerman. Yeah. Oh, Rhoda. Rhoda, tell them. I'm your mother, Rhoda. Tell them. Tell them what, Mildred? What they already know. That you murdered my father. And my stepfather. And Ben Elliott. And me. Tell them what. Hold oh, no. Don't fight them, Mildred. That way they'll have to kill you quickly. Rhoda! 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 Broadway. It's the main trek through the jungle city. The wilderness of laughter and trumpets and the rasping sound of life inside the earth. And the other sound, the sigh, the furtive sigh, the echo of a teardrop that no one hears. It's Broadway, the gaudiest, the most violent, the lonesomest mile in the world. Broadway, my beat. is My Beat, stars Larry Thor as Detective Danny Clover, with Charles Calvert as Tartaglia. The program was produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. The musical score was composed and conducted by Alexander Courage. The cast tonight included Joyce McCluskey, Betty Lou Gerson, Jack Edwards, Howard McNear, Jack Crucian, and Lou Merrill.
This is the United States Armed Forces Radio and Television Service.